John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of heaven. We read that in chapter 3. And then when the Lord Jesus begins his ministry, he announces the kingdom of heaven. And so as we, as we come up to chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, our, our text in which Jesus speaks about who gets to be in the kingdom of heaven, the Holy Spirit has already set us up in chapters 3 and 4 that one must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both the Baptist and Jesus preach that. Now, what is, what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is where God is present in his grace and his power. The kingdom is where God is known and loved and worshipped. The kingdom is where people are freed from the dominion of sin. They are free to love and to serve and to worship God. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of light. It is the pearl of great price. It is that treasure hidden in a field. It is worth giving up everything to gain it. And yet, it is a kingdom not won by effort. It is a kingdom given by grace. The scripture says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of heaven is not a question of political power, or nor even of the basic necessities of physical life, but the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom it's not some abstract thing in our minds and in our theology textbooks, but the kingdom, says the Lord, is in the midst of us. It is wherever Christ is present with his word and his spirit. And the kingdom is not something stagnant, but the kingdom of heaven is advancing with power. As Daniel saw in that dream of his he saw that rock which represents the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ rolling and rolling and growing and growing and crushing all the kingdoms of the world and growing even more until finally it filled the entire earth. The kingdom is the inheritance of the saints. It is what God is storing up and getting ready for us. And on that great day of judgment, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom is our inheritance, but the kingdom is also us. He, says the scriptures, he has made us a kingdom of priests so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever, worshiping in the cloud of glory and love and light and life so that we can live in a new world where every tear has been wiped from our eyes and every wrong has been set right and we are finally home with the Lord. 
in the new heavens and the new earth, filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And, and that truth, that reality of the kingdom of heaven is something that now already we, we know and we taste its power and its glory even as we wait for the fullness of it, the final consummation. Now, Jesus has been proclaiming the good news of this kingdom, and we read about that in chapter 4. And he's been telling about it, but not just telling, he's been showing, he has been healing diseases and affliction. And that's what the great miracles of the Lord Jesus and the apostles and the prophets in the Old Testament are meant to do. They're meant to authenticate the truth of the spoken word. And so Jesus is showing, look, I'm making the dead to stand up. The people who can't walk, I'm making to, to run again. The people who are dying of disease, I am healing. And I'm showing you, I'm opening the eyes of the blind, I'm showing you a little picture of how things will be in the consummation of the glory of the kingdom. And that's going to get people's attention, and it sure does, because people come from everywhere. And there are huge crowds following the Lord Jesus, perhaps not so much for what he's saying, perhaps many of them for what he is doing. And seeing those crowds, and if you have your Bible open, you'll be able to follow the sermon better. Seeing those crowds, he went up on the mountain and sat down and began to teach. Now, when the Lord Jesus sees crowds, he has a number of ways of dealing with that. In the Gospel of Mark, he's been healing people, and, and then early in the morning, he goes off to pray, and the disciples are looking frantically for him. Jesus, there's a whole pile of people looking for miracles. Why are you here all by yourself? There's a great big market here for what we've got to, to offer. Why aren't you taking advantage of that? And the Lord Jesus says, well, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to the other towns and cities so that I can preach the gospel, for that is why I have come. The miracles, the healings are incidental. They're supplementary. They're not the main thing. And so sometimes when there are crowds seeking miracles, the Lord Jesus goes away to preach. This time he stays to preach. He goes up on the mountain. And think about that. When he was a little baby, his parents fled to Egypt, and out of Egypt, God called his son. He's come out of Egypt, literally, and he has just been baptized. He has passed through the Red Sea of baptism, and he has been driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in some way, the Lord Jesus is, is repeating the story of redemption of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. And now, after having gone out into the wilderness, he goes up onto the mountain to declare the law of the kingdom. Just like when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, and we heard the law this morning, and God prefaces the law with those words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've, I've freed you from slavery, so this is how you can live in freedom and so the Lord Jesus is doing the same thing here in a fuller and deeper way as he fulfills the law in every aspect. He sits down on the mountain 
and he declares what life looks like when you have been freed from the power of the kingdom of darkness and transferred to be a citizen of the kingdom of his beloved son. And he sat down. And nowadays when we have teaching, often people stand up. But at that time, the the scribes and, and, and the teachers of the law, they would sit down to teach. That's what he's doing. Everybody knows what's going to happen. He's going to be preaching, so they all sit down to listen. The sermon, as we read it, as it's recorded in the Gospels, takes maybe 10 or 15 minutes, but this is a summary of a sermon which most likely went on for a number of hours. The summary is in chapters 5 and 6 and 7. And his disciples came to him. He's teaching them in the first place. But he's also teaching the crowds as he teaches his disciples. And he's teaching them about the character of citizenship in the kingdom. That it is a radical type of citizenship. Now, radical, when we think of radical and radicals, we think of people dressing up in in, in black clothes and masking themselves and throwing Molotov cocktails. That's not the kind of radical that I have in mind when I choose the word for the theme of the sermon or the title of the sermon. The, the word radical comes from the Latin word for root. And so something which is radical means something which goes down to the very roots. And so in that sense, kingdom citizenship is radical citizenship. It is not superficial. It's not just another little layer that you paint over your life. But radical kingdom citizenship is the total opposite to everything that the world values and has to offer. And so Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we see that word blessed, and in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is asher. Some, some of the members of this congregation have that name. It means blessed. Some older translations translate happy, but not happy in the sense of emotionally uh, lifted up. But blessed in the Scriptures means approved by God. That you live your life in the light of the smile of God. That all is well. That you experience the shalom of God. That it is well with your soul. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. And the emphasis here in the the text is, is on that word theirs. For theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you're not poor in spirit, you don't stand a chance of entering. It is not for you. The doors are closed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as you scan down the list of Beatitudes there in, in chapter 5, and, and the word Beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed, so it's the list of blessings. As you scan down the list, look on the right-hand side of the last phrase of each one of those verses, starting in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth. 
And then you see at the very end, in verse 10, we have a repetition. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you look at those last phrases in all of the Beatitudes, they're describing the kingdom. They're describing what it is like to live in the kingdom. They're describing what it is like to be a citizen of the kingdom. When yours is the kingdom of heaven, then you will know the comfort of God. Then you will be an heir of the earth. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. Your deepest longings and desires will be fully satisfied. You shall receive mercy. You shall see God. And you will be part of the family of God. You will be called the sons and the daughters of God. And so those last phrases in each beatitude are describing the kingdom and life in the kingdom, the blessings of the kingdom. And all the first parts of those Beatitudes are describing the radical character of citizenship in the kingdom. And so let's look at the first one here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's poor in spirit here. It's not blessed are people that don't have a lot of money. But it's blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And the idea is wretchedly poor beggarly poor, a cowering, cringing, wretched, begging, empty hands, absolutely no resources, desperate, not, not the kind of begging that we might see at the stoplights in St. Albert, where people still do have food and clothing and some kind of shelter. But this is the begging of those who have nothing. They are fully dependent on the giving of others. And so this part of being a citizen of the kingdom is a personal recognition that I am spiritually bankrupt. There is a deep sense of the loathsomeness of sin, that it is a, a leprosy which I have brought since my mother's womb and which spreads over my whole soul and totally corrupts every part of my being, you cannot enter the kingdom of God if you think that sin is a small problem that Jesus is going to fix. You need to be poor in spirit, and that means the total opposite of the self-sufficiency and the, the entitlement of the world. The world which says, believe in yourself. The world which teaches us in the movies and the TV shows and the stuff that streams online that you are worth something in yourself. That you are precious. The world which tells us to embrace self-esteem, that I can do it, that the power, that the answer, that the solution is to look deep down within me and marshal all of my power and my resources and be a God to myself. But the Christian says, none of that. I stretch out empty hands. Christ is my only hope. I have nothing to offer. He has everything to give. 
And it is to such, and to such only, that the Lord comes. Jesus began his ministry by reading from Isaiah chapter 61 in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In Psalm 34, the psalmist says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, it's so obvious, the Bible is so clear, and yet we as Christ's church are so quick to stray from the truth. You think of Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, and the Lord Jesus reprehends them. He admonishes them. He tells them off. He says, look, you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea. Now, who wants to wake up on Sunday morning and come to church to be told that? That you are wretched, that I am pitiable, that I am poor, that I am blind, that I am naked. And what does Jesus continue to say to the church at Laodicea? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And every Sunday when we come into God's presence in worship, that's how we begin the liturgy. We come into his presence and, and the pre-service song, we, we sing something to, to get our minds on the things of God and to, and to speak of our longing as we sang this morning, our longing to, to be in God's presence and to hear his voice and, and to see him in the gospel and the sacraments. And then the first song of the liturgy after the greeting and the, the blessed salutation is often a song of praise of God's holiness and his glory as we worship him, we fall down before him. And then the next part of the liturgy, as we're confronted with God's holiness and the law, we confess that we are not worthy, that our hands are empty of anything worthy. In fact, our hands are covered in blood and the filth of our sin and shame. And we come to God and say, Lord, help me. Clean me. Wash me. Forgive me. Because I can't scrub it out myself. And that is to be poor in spirit. And to these, and to these only, God says, welcome home. Come on in. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. You belong to me. You are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Your hands are clean. Your heart is pure. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 4. And there's a sequence here. These, Jesus isn't saying these things at random. They, they connect in a most glorious way, in a far deeper way than I can possibly communicate in a short sermon. But if we, if we are poor in spirit, 
we know our unworthiness, we, we know our sin, then something proceeds from that. We are not happy about that. We grieve over it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever grieved over your sin? We grieve over our sin and its consequences, our own sin, but also a sin in the world around us. And, and it weighs on us, and we're sad, and we grieve because we know it's not supposed to be like this. And so we reflect the character of our Lord Jesus Christ as He wept over Jerusalem, and as He wept at the grave of Lazarus, as He wept at sin and the consequences of sin, and we share in Christ's weeping as we long for a home that we have never known. As we long for the crooked to be made straight, as we long for the end of sin and the restoration of creation, as we long to see what Jesus tells us He will do, behold, I make all things new. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, says the Lord Jesus. And the word meek here is not someone scared and timid and wimpy and a, and a pushover. The main meaning of this word has to do with being very gentle. And the picture that you can have in your mind is of a great and mighty king with a, with a sword and and weapons of war, and he is restraining himself as he is being assailed by a foolish peasant. He could just take out his sword and get rid of the problem, but he, he is gentle, and he is patient even with the foolish. This is the gentleness, and the same word here is used later on in the gospel when the Lord Jesus Christ says, take my yoke upon you, Learn from me, for I am gentle, that's the same word in the Greek, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It is the gentleness of Christ on the cross, as he could have come down in a blaze of glory and called ten legions of angels and destroyed his enemies and showed them something, showed them who he was. But it is the forbearance, the patience, and the gentleness and the kindness of our Savior, who even for his enemies said to God the Father, Father, forgive them. In other words, hold back your wrath at this moment, for they don't understand what they're doing. And so the, the meekness, the gentleness of the citizen of heaven is the opposite of the attitude of the world. The world says, do you know who I am? Do you know with whom you are dealing? And sometimes you hear even believers say this, oh, you don't want to see me get angry, or you don't want to get on my bad side. That's the character of the works of the flesh and the kingdom of darkness. The character of the kingdom of heaven is gentleness, and it goes together with those other Parts of the fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, now, why? Why is the citizen of heaven meek 
and gentle. Because we know who we are in ourselves. And we know what we are outside of Christ, apart from Christ. Because we are poor in spirit. Because we mourn over sin. Because we know how patiently and gently God has dealt with us. Have you ever had that, parents? You're angry at your children because they didn't fulfill your expectations. We are angry at our children because they didn't do what we said. And sometimes we lash out in anger and frustration. And have you ever thought, parent, wow, if God would do this to me, I'll be dead. I'll be so dead. If God would be so impatient with me when I mess up his commands, I would have no hope. And how often... As little tin pot dictators, we strut around demanding obedience to ourselves when we don't even know how to worship God aright. And so when we're poor in spirit and when we mourn over our sin and when we know how patiently and gently God has dealt with us, then we will so deal with others. And the Lord Jesus says, it is the meek, it is the gentle who will inherit the earth. And this is a quote from Psalm 37, which we sang through last Sunday. The world is ours. And the world becomes ours not through force of arms, not by taking up weapons, not by fighting, not by forcing other people to think what we want them to think, to do what we want them to do, to say what we want them to say. The world is not inherited, or we do not gain the earth by demanding things of people, and by laying heavy burdens on ourselves and on others, or by standing up for ourselves and spoiling for a fight and ready to avenge ourselves and standing on our rights. But the world is inherited with the gentleness of Christ. As we invite others who are heavily burdened to come and to find rest in him. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now we sang before the service, Psalm 42, how we thirst for God's great love. We languish, we long for him. There's nothing on earth that we desire Besides him, we long to know him. We long to be like him. We, we know what we are apart from Christ, that we are poor in spirit, and, and, and we're mourning because of that. And as a result, we're, we're meek and humble and gentle with other people and their sins, and we're patient. That's the one result. But the other result is that we long to be made righteous. Now, it's important that, that this blessedness is a result and not a primary goal. We, we don't live our lives seeking blessedness, seeking happiness. That doesn't work. That's, that's not the, the way it's supposed to work. It is a byproduct. There are, that's the way of the flesh. That's the way of the world. They, they seek satisfaction. They seek comfort. They seek Blessedness and happiness in themselves and in their choices, but we seek it in Christ. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the word righteousness here in our text refers both to the righteousness of justification, 
that God has declared us clean and holy and innocent and righteous in Christ. And it is also the righteousness of sanctification that, that we long to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, I want to be more holy. Lord, I don't want to love sinful things. Lord, take, don't just make me do good things, but take away the desire for bad things in my heart. That hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Now, notice the, the language of Scripture here, the language of the Lord Jesus. It is, it is a hunger and thirst that is not dealt with through our efforts or through our actions. It is something passive. We shall be satisfied. It is something that happens to us. It is sovereign grace. It is the work of God. Justification, being declared righteous, clean, holy in Christ. Sanctification, becoming more and more who we are in Christ and reflecting his character. Those are both works of grace, sovereign grace. What does the Lord Jesus say? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What does the Lord Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what does the psalmist say? For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied in the sense of that you don't need anything more? Or are you hungry and thirsty? Do you hunger and thirst for more? You know, if you're hungering and thirsting and longing for the things of this world to make you happy, you will never be satisfied. But do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? You know, you know we, we spend so much time running after things. But what are we running after? How much time are we spending on, on things that have to do with this short life? Which is all going to be swept away in a moment. Everything around us is going to burn up one day anyway. And we spend so much time hungering and thirsting for satisfaction in the things of this earth. And then we spend so much time, so little time, seeking the face of God in fervent, incessant prayer. Why is it that prayer so often is just a little appendage on our life? It's a way of telling God what time it is, Lord. At the beginning of this meal, we ask for your blessing. Lord, at the end of this meal, we thank you. We have our little routines of prayer. But how often do we just spend time talking to God. You know, you, you spend time with someone you love. You're getting to know someone, and, and you're just lost in who they are, and you, you look into their eyes, and everything else disappears, and, and all you want to do is talk, and when you're not together, you're texting, and, and you just always want to be communicating. And then with God, we're, we're happy with a few muttered words. That doesn't make sense, brothers and sisters. We need so much to learn to pray, to be hungry, to know him, 
to see Christ in the Word and the sacraments. You know, if you despise the preaching of the Word, if you absent yourself from public worship without lawful reasons, if there are times when Jesus comes down from heaven and speaks to you his words of love and grace and truth, and you say, God, I'm busy. I'm going to stay home. I've got other things to do. Catch me another time. And how hungry are you? Do you really long to be holy and to be like Christ? Are you really satisfied only with him? Do you really know the blessedness of the radical character of citizenship in the kingdom of God? So what are the consequences when we know God's righteousness, when we long for it, when we hunger for it, when we are satisfied more and more by Jesus and his righteousness? Well, those are the next few beatitudes. We are merciful. We are pure in heart. We are peacemakers because, because when we know God's righteousness in Christ, then we are justified, we have peace with God, and we are sanctified, we grow to be more like Jesus, and that makes us merciful, that makes us pure in heart, that makes us peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful, verse 7. Now, now grace, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We have received God's mercy, and God expects that we will reflect his character. We would love to extend mercy to others. But I want to note something here. Sometimes people twist this and pervert this and stretch it out of all proportion, and they say that the Christian must forgive and be merciful no matter how egregious and wicked the things that have been done are. And so someone who has been abused is told, well, you must forgive, even if the person doesn't confess their wickedness and repent from it. That is not true. The mercy of God is not a mercy at the expense of justice and righteousness. And we are not required to say it's okay to people who have done wicked things. God doesn't require that of us. But what he does require from the Christian and what he gives the Christian is a disposition of mercy. That we feel sorry for those who have offended us and hurt us. We feel sorry even for our worst enemy. And if we can do anything to help them in a way which is good, to help them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to help them know the washing that we know and the righteousness that we have, then we will do it gladly and from the heart. See, the mercy of the Christian sees slaves of sin, not as an offense against us, but sees the slaves of sin as pitiable wretches. And we feel sorry for them. And the desire of our heart is to do anything, anything to help them, to bring them closer to God. And so the mercy that we have in the power of the Spirit is cultivating our heart to be ready and quick to forgive when there is true repentance 
in the other, the one who is offended. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. And we're going to sing Psalm 24 in a moment. It speaks about having a pure heart. Only the person with a pure heart can enter into the presence of God. And the word pure means not mixed. It means not alloyed. It means undivided. It means whole. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with, with all your heart, not just a little bit of it, not just most of it, but all of it. Not, not mixture of, of love and hate, not a mixture of the holy and the foul, but the heart must be totally united in loving and worshiping God. Now, we sang Psalm 86 a few moments ago, and in stanza four, we sang these words, let it be my heart's one aim to revere your holy name. That's the idea here, that the heart is totally fixed on loving and worshiping God. Now, the heart in Scripture isn't just that, that muscle, I think it is, which beats inside of us and makes our heart, uh, makes our blood pump around. The heart in Scripture speaks of the center of who we are. It includes our mind and our will and our affections, our desires and our emotions. And outside of Christ, the heart, the very center, the core of our being is the source of all of our misery. What does the Lord Jesus say? For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's who we are apart from Christ. But when the Lord Jesus turns our lives the right way up again, he answers our cry, create in me a new heart. And that's what he gives us. And he pours the love of God into our hearts. And he unites our heart to fear his name in the power of the Spirit, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our being. It is not God and. It's not God, I love you mostly, but there are some other things that I really love as well. And when it really comes down to it, sometimes you've got to take a back seat. It is God or nothing. Remember, the Bible says, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. They shall see God. The pure in heart shall see God. Now, God is spirit. He has no form. So it certainly doesn't mean to say we're going to see some kind of a shape. But what we will see in even greater measure, we see it already. We see the glory of God, the majesty, his divine attributes in the creation, even a fallen, groaning creation. We drive to church on the Sunday morning, the sun is shining gloriously. And we see the, the northern lights dancing across the skies at the, in the nighttime. And we see God's glory. And, and that's, it's just nothing. What we see now is nothing compared to what we shall see. The glory of God displayed in a totally renewed and restored universe. But there's more. You see, we shall see the glory of God in the face of Christ because Christ can be seen. And he is God. 
and we will see pure love, and he will ravish our souls. That is what God promises us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and then blessed are the peacemakers. You know, as we as we focus on the things that are above, as we set our minds on the things that are above, as we focus on the glory of the presence of God, the more we do that, the less the little squabbles and problems of this world have any meaning to us. And so the apostle says, you're having an argument with a brother. Why are you dragging each other to the worldly courts, the secular courts? Why not rather be wronged? Lift up your eyes and have a bit of perspective here. And so, the more we look at Christ, the more we look up, the more we, we're just okay. If things don't always go our way, the apostle writes to the Hebrews and he says, you accepted with joy the despoiling of your goods. People were ripping them off. People were stealing their stuff because they were Christians. And, and the result wasn't that the Christians made a Facebook group and said, this, you know, we're going to stand up for our rights and, and this is bad. And they didn't protest in front, of the, uh, in front of the town hall saying, give us our stuff back. They rejoiced. They said, well, this is what happens when you love God. People hate you. It's okay. It'll all turn out okay in the end. These things are all going to burn up one day anyway. And the disciples were beaten by the Sanhedrin, and they rejoiced to be found worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To, to be a peacemaker means that we don't fight for ourselves. We don't seek our kingdom, but we seek the kingdom of God. We seek peace on earth. We serve the Prince of Peace. And our character therefore, is that we are sons and daughters of the living God. We are the ones in any conflict who call for peace, who call for reconciliation. We never stand on our rights, but we seek the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. We seek justice and righteousness and restoration and healing and peace, and we are prepared to give up everything for that, even our very lives, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus, the great Prince of Peace, he gave up his life to reconcile us to God. And we understand that true peace is only possible when hearts are changed. And so we don't pick up weapons to impose our will on others by force. But we pick up the sword of the Spirit, and we preach the Word, and our feet are shod with the gospel of peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the, the radical character of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And if this describes who you are, if you are like this, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb in this world, and you will be hated. That's just a fact. The, the, the gospel that the Lord Jesus continues to, to speak about that in, in, in verses 10 and 11 and 12. If you are like this, you're going to be hated. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no two ways about it. The, the Bible's very clear. You live for God, you love God, you serve God, 
you will be persecuted. You're going to run into trouble because you're going against the grain of the world. You know, what happens when there's something in your body that doesn't belong? If there's a foreign object or something foreign in your body, well, then your body's immune system kicks into gear and it tries to expel it. There's inflammation. The immune system attacks that invader. And in this world of sin, this corrupt, perverse world of sin, we are foreign objects. We don't belong to the world the way it is. And so the world has a visceral reaction. It wants to get rid of us. It wants to destroy us. Much like our body tries to destroy an invading virus. And so if you want to know if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, there's a very easy litmus test. If the world loves you, if the world has no problem with anything that you say or do, if you are friends with the world, if nothing that you do offends them or bothers them or confronts them, then you are not in the kingdom. You are not blessed. You do not know Christ. And that is why it is so important that we maintain the otherworldliness, not only of our lives, but of our worship. You know, sometimes people say, well, the unbeliever walks in and it's weird. Everything's weird. And, and they're a little bit lost and confused. And the music is like from another time. And the words are strange. And why don't we make things more pleasant and more easy for the unbeliever? Why don't we make our services seeker-sensitive? What does the world like? The world likes entertainment. Let's give them entertainment and then a little dose, a few drops of Jesus mixed in there, kind of like a bait and switch. We might snag them for Jesus that way. Brothers and sisters, if we change worship, or if we change what we say and do to please the world, to make them comfortable, that's really stupid. Because it's not going to help us, nor the world. The church needs to be radically different from the world. And when unbelievers come into the church of God as we worship in the presence of God and the holy angels, they must feel out of place. They must feel that they are in another reality, in another world, because they are. They are in a place and time where heaven and earth meet. And they should feel it. And they should know it. And so the Lord Jesus continues when you are a radical citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then there are two ways in which you're going to stick out in the world. And we're going to finish briefly looking at the last verses of our text. You're going to be salt and you're going to be light. Now the salt has to do with preservation. What Jesus is saying is this, in this broken, groaning, corrupt world, you are either part of the rotting or part of the preserving. And the Christian who has the radical character of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is life in the midst of death. And wherever we are, we bring life in the midst of death. We stand up for life in the midst of death. And so we need to pay attention to what the Lord Jesus is telling us here. 
Because when you eat your meat, you don't grab a big chunk of salt and put it all on one end of the meat and then eat the salt altogether in one great big glob because that's going to taste disgusting and it's not going to do anything. It's not going to do much. It's going to be spread out. But what do we tend to do as, as believers, especially as reformed believers? We tend to just glob in our little groups, in our tightly knit communities of family and friends and connected to the school, and, and we don't dare to move away from where there is a school. And so we tend to just coagulate into these blobs, into these, into these virtual communes, really. I mean, we are living out amongst the world, but sometimes for all intents and purposes, we have our own separate community from the world. That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ is asking of us. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to be salt in the world. Unbelievers, sometimes the only way that they can come to meet the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, is to meet a Christian. And if all the Christians are gathering together and huddling together, we're depriving them of the opportunity to know that glorious transformation from darkness to light and from death to life. How can we do that? So we need to be out there in the world. And people need to see and hear that we are children of God. And there are many, many good things happening. I know that in this congregation as well, there are many good things happening where people are on, on reading groups in the public library or they're in other organizations in the community and they are being a child of God in the community. And may the Lord multiply that as we are assaulting salt. And then we are light the light of the world. We proclaim the kingdom by being sons of light. And, you know, we look at the news and we see the world around us and, and we see how life has changed radically in the last few decades and, and how sin has grown and perversity has grown and wickedness has grown. Immorality is celebrated. And sometimes we think, oh, if only things were like the 1950s when you couldn't really tell the difference between believers and unbelievers because everybody behaved externally. Brothers and sisters, let's celebrate. Let's be happy that the world is showing its true colors. And that more and more, it's very, very difficult to pretend that you're a Christian because the cost of being a Christian is too high. Praise the Lord for that. That the darker the world becomes, the brighter the light of the gospel shines. And these are exciting opportunities for us to shine with the light of the Lord Jesus Christ individually in our homes and families and as the church of God. So that people can see from a mile off that we're different, that we are radically different. And that becomes massively attractive, brothers and sisters, when you're stumbling around in the dark and you see a bright light, that's the first thing you want to head for. And so may the Lord make us bearers of that great light from heaven. And may many sinners be drawn to the gospel through our walk and through our talk. Now these are radical commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot be content with half measures. You know, if you are rotting at a slightly slower rate than your unchurched neighbor, don't fool yourself into thinking that you are salt. And if you are a slightly brighter shade of gray than your unchurched neighbor, don't fool yourself into thinking that you are the light of the world. 
Jesus calls us to a radical citizenship where you can see from a mile off that we are different. The world must see Christ in us. They should not see us blabbering about what they should do or what they should think, but they should see us living for Christ. They should see our good works. You see that there at the end of the text? They may see your good works. It doesn't help the world if they see us huddled around a Bible talking theology. That's an important thing to do, but it doesn't help the world. They need to see theology on fire. They need to see theology in action. They need to see Christ in us. And then they need to see the power of the glory of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of love, the kingdom of Christ filling us, transforming us, and radiating from us. You see, Christianity... It's not about saying the right thing in the first place. It's not about doing the right thing in the first place. But Christianity is in the first place about being. Christianity is who are we in Christ? And then it is about being who we are, living in accordance with who we are in Christ. And so the radical character of citizenship in the kingdom is described by the Lord Jesus in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope in the following weeks to pay attention to certain aspects of that sermon. The Lord Jesus will describe in the following verses that when we be who we are, then we shine. And then the kingdom advances in the world. And then God is glorified. So we're going to sing Psalm 24. We're going to sing about the King of us to mean the Lord who is king. We're going to sing about the Lord Jesus. And so come to him. Come to King Jesus to be made fit citizens for his kingdom. And as you come to God in Christ, then just as the gates of heaven opened for Jesus upon his ascension, so you will come up to the gates of heaven. And the gates might raise their eyebrow quizzically and say, what are you doing here, sinner? And then you can say, I am with him. And I have been changed to be like him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And my hands are clean. And my heart is pure. And I am a citizen of the kingdom. And the gates of heaven will widely open for you. And the angels will rejoice. And say, welcome to glory, son of the king, daughter of the king. Welcome home. Amen.